The Land Bolton Podcast is sponsored by Murrah Ranch Group, serving buyers and sellers of legacy ranches and sporting properties with conservation values since 2005. Welcome to the Land Bulletin Podcast, where we discuss a wide range of topics impacting landowners, ranchers, and future land buyers. I'm your host, Haley Murr. Fly fishing properties have always been highly sought after by buyers. Today, we'll revisit my chat with the founder of Murr Ranch Group, Ken Murr, and fly fishing property expert and senior VP, Daniel Carter, to discuss the state of the fly fishing ranch market, how fisheries impact values, and other matters affecting fly fishing properties. In part one of a two-part series, the group digs into how stream access laws differ from state to state and how we value properties with streams and fisheries. Hey there, <laughs> I'm Haley Murr. I am the Director of Operations here at Murr Ranch Group. Welcome again to our Lay of the Land uh, live stream where every other week we discuss the ranch and sporting property market, buying and selling advice, and the latest best stewardship practices, as well as topics currently impacting landowners. Murr Ranch Group is a full-service ranch real estate brokerage and consulting company focusing on legacy ranches, sporting and conservation properties around the West. Today, we're going to be talking about fly fishing properties, including the current market for this type of property, issues private landowners are facing across the West when it comes to stream access, as well as other topics uh, impacting owners and buyers of fly fishing properties. Thank you to everyone, as always, for submitting your questions. We'll try to get to them as, as many as we can on this broadcast, but if we don't, we will get back to you after this with uh, some more detailed answers. Helping me out today is founder of Murr Ranch Group, Ken Murr. Um, welcome, Ken. Hi, Ken. Good to see you. Ken isn't necessarily the fly fishing guru, we have Daniel Carter, who's going to be joining us as well. Daniel Carter is a former fly fishing guide and Montana native. Daniel has been brokering fly fishing properties and ranches for the past decade with us. And he's probably the best person uh, to kind of have on this podcast and live stream. Uh, Daniel Carter. Hey, guys. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. You can hear me. <laughs> I can, can hear, hear me you. now. I can hear you now. I can hear you now. I wonder what that button was for. That's the mute button. It was blinking at me. <laughs> awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today and for your, giving us your sage kind of advice about fly fishing properties, um, giving us a little bit of knowledge, and we're excited to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here and uh, always, always happy to talk fly fishing. So I guess we're going to kind of go right into it. So Daniel actually wrote an article that we will be putting out later this week. If you want to learn more about this topic we're going over today, um, that will, if you subscribe to our newsletter, you'll be able to see it. Uh, but one of the big things we talk about in that article is stream access issues. You know, a lot of people, there's stream access, wade versus float. There's a lot of different issues and every state is different. So I guess we'll kind of start with Colorado since that's where the majority of a lot of our fly fishing properties are located and go beyond there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just to start, I think this is a, a meaty discussion, right? You can you can go down the rabbit hole pretty quickly on any of these um, stream access law type of issues from state to state. But it's one of the first conversations 
that we have with prospective buyers and and you know aspiring owners of fly fishing properties it's it's one of the foundational things that drives value on fly fishing ranches throughout the west and so it's one of the you know fundamental things that a buyer needs to understand when approaching potentially owning a fly fishing ranch and and it drives the main thing is location where do you want to be um what what type of stream access law are you comfortable with? It's definitely an education and uh, in, in getting familiar with that. And, and it's something that we um, we try to, you know, bring to our buyer's attention from the get-go. That's step one. So, you know, I, I think trying to provide a broad overview is is kind of the the place to start. And and basically every state, there's different nuances to stream access law. But starting with Colorado, you know, we we do a lot, obviously, in Colorado, that's where we're based. And all of this kind of goes back to whether whatever state you're in, this all goes back to uh, when states became states, what we call statehood. And, and those laws and as state constitutions got written, a lot of the law today is derived from that time um, in history. So in, in Colorado, the stream bed, which means the land that the river or stream or creek is flowing over, the stream bed is can be privately owned. So if you own a ranch, you can actually own the, the bed of the stream. The water in Colorado, um, whether that be a creek or a river or a lake, the, that water is considered to be a public asset. So it's it's owned essentially by the state of Colorado for the beneficial use of the citizens of the state. But let's put this into practical matter. If you're a wade fisherman, you need to be wading on the river, right? So you need to be touching and walking on the stream bed. If you do not have permission from the private landowner that surrounds that fishery to be walking in the stream, then you would be trespassing. Taking that to a different state, per se, like Montana, it's a very different approach. So in Montana, it, we, you kind of see the, the opposite. So the stream bed, as well as the water flowing through the stream, both are considered to be a publicly owned asset in the state of Montana. So as long as you're accessing the stream from a legal public access point, and you're not trespassing, walking across a private ranch to access the stream, let's say you're getting it at a public bridge or even a public access point that's owned by the state or you know it might be on BLM land. As long as you're accessing the stream from that access, a public access point, then you can stay within the watermark, what we call the ordinary high watermark, which is again, one of those kind of complex things to understand when we talk about stream access law. But you know, in the springtime, most rivers swell and we have runoff. So the water is higher. And in the later in the summer and the fall, the water comes down. But there is a historic high water mark that you can see where the water historically has been high. And as long as a person is within that ordinary high water mark and they don't come up outside of that, then they can stay within the stream and they are not trespassing and they can access as much as they want. They can walk up the stream, down the stream. So, you know, we can go into to the each each state if you want, but that kind of is is a good compare and contrast of how we look at stream access law across states and and that, you know, that access can certainly drive valuation on on private fishing ranches. Mm -hmm. Haley um, and Daniel, the, you know, going back, you know, when, when heck, when I moved out in '83 and started to law school, you, you kind of learn these things. But 
you know, the people who really know a lot about these access issues are the fishing guides mm -hmm. and, and the public fishermen. So they tend to know when they're going in uh, on properties or where they regularly go. But we do find a lot of landowners that are looking at properties, sometimes don't know these nuances of, of these of these laws. And uh, and they're sometimes surprised, you know, they get surprised. And there's one thing about waiting and there's another thing about floating. They're all mm -hmm. kind of you know, these are all issues that impact the properties and they're all considered, you know, stream access. Are you floating? Are you anchoring? You know, there's all these nuances that you can enter too. What, you know, can you slow down? Can, can you row back and stay in an eddy for a while? You know, can you slowly drift and with an anchor kind of moving? And like anything in any situation too, some people really um can can be supportive and, and acknowledge it and then there's others that of course will uh, can abuse those situations and it is we hear all the stories you know as we represent oh, yeah. landowners sure and you could i could see where that high water mark could be a little arbitrary and some people don't quite understand it so kind of having that knowledge base and talking to fly fishing guides and brokers and really understanding what that means because I know yeah. I've been floating before where we didn't really know where we could anchor, where the line was, things like that. So having that before you even go out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are two different perspectives of this, right? Like, I mean, you've kind of got the perspective of the private landowner and, and private property, property rights. And then you have the perspective of, you know, the public recreationist, whether that's a whitewater rafter or a fly fisherman or a kayaker or whatever, whoever's using that water. And you know, sometimes what's good for one isn't isn't good for the other. But these stream access laws allow there to be, you know, a common kind of understanding amongst the user groups of water so that we can navigate these things effectively. I mean, the, the floating thing is is a is a great thing to to talk about, right? Because wade fishing is one thing and floating out of a drift boat or a raft is entirely another. Um, right. And these things have nuances from state to state also. Like, for instance, you know, like in Utah, their law specifically states that you can incidentally touch the bottom of a stream. So if you happen to be going through a shallow stretch where your raft skids on the bottom of a riffle, that's okay. It's, it's understood and actually prescribed in the law that, that that's something that's permissible um, through their stream access. Uh, same thing when it comes to a dangerous obstruction in the river. Let's say there's you know, what we call a strainer would be like a, a big log has fallen across the stream and you're floating, you come around the corner, you can portage that, that obstruction. And what portage means is essentially get your boat out of the water and walk it on the land around that, get back in the stream and keep going. So Utah has, has actually recently kind of updated that because that's a little bit more modern use, right? Like back mm -hmm. when we when Utah became a state, that wasn't really something that was concerning for stream access. You know, I mean, back then it was a lot of um, commercial, you know, use and commerce of how we utilized streams. You know, from floating logs down the river to you know for timber harvester or a, a commercial trapper that's going you know up in a canoe to try to collect you know, beaver pelts and, and furs. And, and so, so that's evolved a little bit in a state like Utah. You take Wyoming, for instance, and if you drop your anchor in a stream in Wyoming, you are considered to be trespassing and you can be writing, written a ticket for it. Wow. Even if, it, like in Colorado, if you're floating 
and um, you know both sides of the stream and the stream bed are owned by a private landowner and your raft skids the bottom of the river, you're considered to be trespassing. So I think it's the responsibility of, of these water users and different user groups to understand what the law is, where they are. And, and I think it's also important for landowners to understand and interpret accurately the, the lay of the land where they are, because there can be a lot of confusion and, and conflict that, that comes from that. Hey, Daniel, sure. I, I was curious too, with all your years, even with, with guiding, have you ever come across a situation too, where a landowner may have intentionally set up a, somewhat of a, a blockade where you have to get out of your boat and go around? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's a great kind of follow up of like, you know, un the landowner understanding the law. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would I had it in Montana, right? When even no trespassing signs, right, staked on the river. No, you know, this is now private land from here on upstream. So yes, I mean that's that's a common thing that fishermen and and river users has to have to navigate. And I think you know the best thing to do instead of trying to you know, in, incite a conflict, personal conflict, with the, <laughs> you know, probably contact your local fishing game and let them, let them deal with it. Whether it's a, you know, foul actor, you know, recreational boater or a landowner that has improperly interpreted the law where they are. The funny thing is all the years I've done, you know, and I'm much more limited. I've never run into an issue when you know the laws, everything's right. pretty you know, pretty clear. I mean, I've never been in a situation yeah. in the last 30 years where I've had a major conflict with anybody. Yeah. Um, but, but people are attracted to these rivers because they're, 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 they're unique. And I guess, you know, you've said that you've definitely talked about kind of the benefits and the viewpoints of both sides. You know, what are the benefits of having this kind of private ownership over streams and rivers, you know, the, to the ecology, to the, the community itself, kind of on that side? That's a great kind of segue into talking about valuation of, of ranches and specifically fly, fly fishing properties. Again, the foundation of it begins with stream access. In Colorado, we are considered to have more private property rights when it comes to the control of riparian areas, which is essentially the area surrounding a stream or a river. And, and in Montana, those private property laws are still intact, but you know, there's just a different way in which those streams are managed because they're wholly owned by the public, right? Including mm -hmm. the stream bed. So there are pros and cons to each. For instance, in Colorado, you can own a completely private fishery where from top to bottom, the only person that can access that fishery is the landowner or anyone, you know, that's given permission by the landowner. So mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, those those private property rights can translate into higher values. And, you know, on the flip, let's just use Montana again as, a, as another example. But the benefit in Montana, it's not all bad that that's a, public, a publicly owned resource. You know, you could own a 60-acre piece of property along a river in Montana that has a remote access point into a river. And now you have the ability to get in the river and walk upstream and downstream off your property boundary into, you know, whatever may be your neighbor, whether that's another private landowner or, you know, some piece of national forest or publicly owned piece of property that the river's flowing through. But it gives you an access point to essentially an infinite amount of water. 
Um, right. So that's that's considered valuable as well. It just depends on kind of the profile and preferences of the buyer and you know prospective landowner. So from kind of the valuation perspective, in Colorado we see and Ken, feel free to jump in here whenever you want. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I personally see a lot more um, stream valuation specific to the linear mile of stream that a ranch may own, right? When we start and look at a ranch, there are many things, many components of value that we break down, whether that's irrigated land, um, sub-irrigated land, dry upland land. Now another one, if you have a fishing property is gonna be the river. How much river do you own? If you own a mile, is it one side or both sides? And that valuation can vary quite widely. You know, you can have a small creek that might be $150,000 per mile. You might have, um, you know, what I would call like the A-grade fishery, which can be a million dollars plus per mile uh, for owning both sides. So that kind of approach to valuation, I don't see that as much in a state like Montana or um, you know other states that that have more open public stream access because it's not considered to be such a private asset to you know the ranch. It's not a an owned component of value that we can then add into the overall valuation of the property. Yeah, like in Montana, I assume you mainly is an attribute, right, to the land, so that the land that adjoins the river. Is a assess at a much higher value than say land that's not absolutely yeah and I think Montana too and, and these other states they you see kind of that price per acre that's mm-hmm. just a higher price per acre hey I'm on the Madison River in Mon- in Southwest Montana okay well that's going to be just a higher price per acre because it's an attribute and adds character to the property you can't necessarily say hey I I own a mile of Madison River well you you own a mile mile of Madison River frontage. And that's, that's a wonderful asset. And, and it makes your property more valuable, but we can't necessarily break that down into a value into of itself. And it can even differ. Like I know parts of the Colorado River are incredible fisheries, and we value those at a, a certain you know, price per mile. But mm-hmm. you can go near Kremling or something like that, where it's bigger, it's not as good of a fishery, but maybe have water rights. So that kind of affects value too, I'm sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We we I had that one property out on the Upper Colorado, and then it was nice flows, but it was nowhere near the flows of the Blue Ribbon. You know, the quality of the fishery was just much different. And and to the general public, they may not they they may see it as a price per acre, but when we, when we look at it, and we break it down for our clients. We will throw in, well, that has X miles or X feet of frontage we'll look at different ways of valuating and we will still look at a per acre valuation on the property, but we're going to look at it two, at least two different ways in, in that regard to come up with a number that is kind of the proper valuation at least. That's what we tend to do in house on those particular type of segments and properties. Yeah. Yeah. I think that practice has kind of come from some of some great appraisers, you know, kind of deciding right. that that's how they might look at these these uh fishing properties specifically because they are purchased for that purpose and so when appraisers are looking at that and and trying to compile a database of comparable values you say okay well this property on the yampa river sold for a million dollars a mile last year and the buyer 
agreed that that's kind of what he felt like it was worth. So let's now attribute that to this property that might be downstream 10 miles. So does that mean it's better or worse? What what are mm -hmm. the components down there? Is it, do you have higher flow down there, lower flow? What's the character of the river down there? So then you can, you know, make your adjustments upward and downward of that comparable or that average kind of price per mile. And it's, it becomes just like anything else from a component of value perspective that we take a look at and, and can bring into that overall blended price per acre and, and total price of the ranch. And can you kind of speak a little bit more, you've kind of hinted at it, but location on the river, like where the ranch is located and how that impacts value, especially in times like this, where we're experiencing some low flows, some drought, you know, yeah. how does location kind of impact that? Yeah, that's another like good good segue into the conversation on on you know drought resiliency and um, and looking at, at these fly fishing properties specifically in this day and age and going forward as we're in drought patterns and we're experiencing historic low flows on a lot of the watersheds throughout the West. You know, there's that old adage about location, 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 right? Always in real estate and. And it proves true in fly fishing properties as well. There are certain things that, that we tend to look at when we're evaluating a fishing property, like how close to you are, how, how close are you to the source of, of the water, whether that be a tailwater, meaning a dam controlled, you know, regulated flow river or a freestone river, which is undammed and flowing directly from the mountains and stream uh, excuse me, and snow melt and runoff and natural mm -hmm. spring water that may come out of the ground. How close are you to that source? Because the closer you are to the source, the more predictable your flows are going to be uh, throughout the year. If you're way downstream on a river, you may, may be more susceptible to low flows, which are going to impact the quality of the fishery. Um, and, and what that really means is water temperature and water volume. So the lower water gets and in the river, the warmer it gets and the less trout are. Um, you might have, you know, fish die off because the water becomes too warm and there's not enough oxygen in the water for the trout to breathe. So all these things are just kind of an, an understanding of what makes something valuable or less valuable. And, and, you know, Ken and I were talking about this the other day too, about it's not necessarily how close you are to the source. Well, that's a consideration. You also want to consider other other things that might impact the flow of a river, like irrigation diversions, right? So in the West, we have a lot of uh, water rights that are diverted out of rivers into irrigation ditches to go and irrigate hay and, you know, supply water for crops and what have you. But if you're right below a, a irrigation diversion that in the middle of summer is pulling out half of the water out of the stream, well, that's definitely something to consider when you're looking at at owning that property, right? So, right. Um, all these things are important uh, when you're looking at drought and and flow and and what we might be looking at long term, 10, 20 years from now. What's going to be the average flow of a river? Thanks for joining us today. Please stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Ken and Daniel next week as we continue our discussion on valuation, as well as other issues impacting fly fishing properties. I'm Haley Murr. I made the episode today with the help of our head of marketing, Mallory Boyce. Big shout outs to our guests, Ken Murr and Daniel Carter. 
For more information on the ranch real estate market and other topics relating to ranch ownership, be sure to check out our website, www.murranchgroup.com, and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening to the Land Bulletin Podcast. See you next time.